Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Open the five-bay doors, pal. Have we lost complete radio contact? Hello, Hell, do you read me? What's the story? You read me, Hell? Hell! I'm Adam Vollerich. And I'm Dom Nero. And this is a podcast about movies and the scenes that make them special. What David Lynch calls Eye of the Duck scenes. An Eye of the Duck is a moment or sequence in a film that defines the whole. Each week on our podcast, we explore a movie by finding the scene at its core. From the earliest days of the medium, filmmakers have transported us beyond Earth's atmosphere. In this miniseries, we'll be charting cinema's greatest space stories... The movies where science fiction, fact, and boundless imagination converge. Welcome to Eye of the Duck, a space odyssey. Adam, Houston, we have a we problem. Have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. It had to be done. For listeners, uh, it, it started as a joke, but my entire setup here like completely failed. And I literally called Adam. I, I didn't even think to say it, but it was like, we have a problem, dude. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing works. I don't know what just happened. I mean, you did text me, Apollo 13 is happening to me. <laughs> it was a very cursed moment. My, it was. Uh, I have this uh, happy lamp next to my my uh, my computer. That, uh, Dom, that, it's called a sad lamp. Well, it makes me happy. So I've been telling myself for years, you know, one of those those lights that just uh, shoots uh, uh, white light into my face. It's right next to my computer monitor and uh, my internet went down, which tends to happen here. And then the, the sad light uh, fell and it must have hit something because then oh, after it, it fell, was. everything my entire like uh setup here my whole rig just shut down and then i'm like scrambling (laughs) 
I mean, yeah, because failure is not an option. That's true. It was very apt for this movie. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, a- it's, it's entirely possible that this might be our finest hour. <laughs> Let's get them all out now. What else do we have? <laughs> what else is there? Should we talk um, about the Lem? We love the Lem. I'm very pro-Lem. This is a pro-Lem podcast. America loves the Lem. Is, is it called the Lem because of Stanislaw Lem? I was wondering. Uh, I think it's because it's lunar exploration module. Um, Ah. Bummer. Let me me double check the E, but I'm pretty sure it is uh, lunar excursion module. Ah. There you go. Pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah, I was going to say, because there are some 2001 Space Odyssey references in this. I mean, least of all the fact that the Apollo 13 is nicknamed the Odyssey. Right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I thought how quaint it would be if the Lem was a reference to Stanislaw Lem, the writer of Solaris. But oh well, I mean, I he mean, is. It, uh, it's well, entirely Polish, possible right? that they uh, they were like, "What should we? Uh, what should we call this thing? Wouldn't it be fun <laughs> if we could find an acronym that spelled, <laughs> spelled Lem?" Um, I don't know though, because his work is most commonly associated with the uh, the Soviet space movie and. If there's anything the American space program is, is it, it is a uh, very anti-Soviet. Or that's that's very true. Um, <laughs> apparently, uh, according to uh, DiscoverSpace.org, uh, they they now just refer to these things as lunar modules. They've they've removed the the excursion, the e. but but they still pronounce it LEM. All right. Well, we cleared it up. We cleared it up. Episode over. Episode over. And Everything I'll you say need to in, know. It, <laughs> That Apollo 13 has, has just happened. And so uh, also according to discoverspace.org, the, the command module is called the Odyssey and the, mm-hmm. the LEM is called the Aquarius. Oh, yeah. Aquarius, nice. Uh, and, and, and all of the Apollo missions had different names for their command modules and their, their, their lunar modules. And so the, uh, the Apollo 11, which is the mission that lands on the moon, Mm-hmm. The uh, the command module is the Columbia, and the Lem is the Eagle, which I assume oh. is where the phrase "the Eagle has landed." The eagle has, has landed. Yeah, nice. Well, listeners, today we are talking about your favorite movie, Apollo thirteen, directed by Ron Howard. It is a big time, like always on TV movie mm-hmm. for our entire lives and probably for the rest of our lives. Although I do not have cable, so I don't know what movies they're playing on TV anymore, but I imagine yeah, Apollo 13 is still in the rotation. I have to assume um, this was one of the first uh, DVDs I ever owned. Yes, it, it has big time early DVD energy as well, right? Yeah, my dad used to do freelance work for a, uh, a hi-fi store in London. And mm-hmm. they uh, they offered him steep discounts on uh, on stuff they had in the store. So we had a DVD player before anyone I knew. But the yeah. only two DVDs we had for a while were uh, Apollo 13 and uh, I want to say A Bug's Life. I feel like those were the first two. <laughs> and then this, and then like weirdly DVD number three was The Lion King 2. Yeah. <laughs> I've said this before. Uh, my dad used to like send out for DVDs. He had some magazine that like, you know, like, you would like, like check a box thing. and like send it in. Yeah. And I think that was the, that was the ideal and like the, the purest era of physical media for me of like, mm-hmm. you wait for it. It shows up, you know, you got the, I mean, coming from the V8, like being VHS kids, this idea that like, 
the DVD is full of all this ancillary material and, and yeah. commentary and scene selection. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I used to, uh, for a movie that I would truly love, like star Wars episode two attack of the clones, <laughs> I would just head to the scene selection and then just keep like replaying the scene over and over again. Cause you could do that. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I don't, you know, I never really use that function. I use that function specifically for, for some reason, an act of God has occurred and I've not been able to, to watch the whole film in one setting. Uh, um, then right. I use scene selection, but uh, I'm not one for like going back and watching just certain mm. set pieces or scenes out of context. Uh, I think, I think even, uh, even at an early age, I understood that these <laughs> things were meant to be, uh, you know, uh, consumed in sequence with one another. Yeah. If, if you ever run into Adam on the street, do not mention the idea that you have split your viewing into like two sessions or yeah. that you're doing anything else while the movie is on. Yeah. Don't um, tell me that. I, it will lower my, uh, my esteem of you, um, to the point that I have and raise your blood zero, res- zero respect for my co-host here. Um, mm-hmm, he's, he's mm-hmm. sinned far too many times. <laughs> I split my viewings up. Uh, I've watched a movie on the train on my phone. Awful. I'm doing bad things these days, <laughs> but but I'm getting better. I I, uh, I recently invested in a in a bigger TV, and I am starting to collect physical media. And I'm it's a work in progress, Adam. Yes. I'm getting. You know, I got a recumbent bike, a stationary recumbent bike that I put in front of my TV. And I think I might say that that is the the ideal way to view a movie. I watched Apollo 13 on my stationary recumbent bike. And when the tension hits, I am like pedaling, like pedal to the metal. It was great. I'm like drenched in sweat by the end of this movie. <laughs> I think that might be the ideal way to stimulate uh, exercise, but it's certainly not the <laughs> ideal way to watch a film, Dominic. <laughs> You know, you're getting, you're, you're burning some calories, you're active. It's great for your back. Good for my knees. There's a lot of good stuff going on here. Speaking of good stuff, we're here to talk about a very good film. Can we talk about the film now? I would love to. Is, is Ron Howard, is his directorial style kind of just like Steven Spielberg, like light? Well, I mean, I, I would I I wouldn't want to say that. I don't think that's a particularly kind way of talking about Howard. Um but Howard is an interesting filmmaker in that I feel like he is the he he's like one of the only sort of journeyman filmmakers that we really have. Um hmm. you know, most filmmakers now kind of fall into either the category of like you know, uh they're your sort of brand name like auteur filmmakers that we like, you know, we treat as you know, events unto themselves. Del Toro, guys like him, right? Right. Then you've got Nolan. Yeah. Then you've got your like franchise IP filmmakers who sort of like blend into the Mm -hmm. the milieu of a corporate aesthetic. And then you've got the Russo brothers. I'm not naming any names. Um, And then you've got your, uh, you know, you've you've got your sort of like your indie filmmakers who very Mm -hmm. often then sort of make the jump to prestige, quote, prestige television, because that's the only outlet they have left. And and this notion of the journeyman filmmaker is is kind of non-existent now. It's not really a a kind of uh, career that is, is available anymore. But Ron Howard is sort of the, like, if I was ever trying to define that concept for someone, I would point them in the direction of Howard's career 
Oh, I love that. Yeah. I haven't thought about him like that. You don't think uh, Solo, a Star Wars story, was like his auteur moment? I think Solo, a Star Wars <laughs> story <kidding>. is, uh, <laughs> is, is no, I don't think it's his, his you know, uh, that, that kind of moment. I, 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 I have no, yeah, I have no useful response to that. Uh, it's very funny that he swooped in and took over that film and it like became, he became part of that narrative. Um, I've been meaning to rewatch that now that I have a TV that can show a dark can film. display the image that, properly. <laughs> yeah, that I can like see. Because when I saw that movie, I could barely see what was on the screen because it's so dark. Um, yeah. I don't know that I will have the, the redeeming experience I was hoping for. But watching this movie, I... I mean, you can't help but think while you're watching that, like, this feels kind of Spielberg-y. Like, I, I see this, like, this could have been something from his career in this era. There's there's a number of reasons why I think you 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 would have this assessment of of Howard and of this film. Um, on a purely aesthetic level, uh, this is shot by Dean Cundy, who has just come off of shooting Jurassic Park. Oh, okay. Um, well, so there's a big one. Yeah. So there, there's a huge thing, but also there's the fact that Howard is uh, is 100% part of this peer group, just a bit removed. Right. right. He 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 gets his sort of you know break on television, and then he does yeah. American Graffiti with with George Lucas. He's friends with all of these filmmakers, That's moves true. into directing himself, and gets his start with Roger Corman, much like Lucas <laughs> and and that crowd. So there are reasons why you would look at uh, Howard's films and think like there is you know there's just an inherent kind of connective tissue with with this other you know with these other films. yeah that's a good way to put it i guess what i am what i'm noticing is like it has the bones of a spielberg production like it feels that way it feels like this great american story kind of thing that he's always mm-hmm. going for it's got hanks <laughs> it does have Steve, uh, Stephen Hanks, our favorite. <laughs> but it it doesn't have like that magical Spielberg thing that you can always find in his films, and and that's okay. I'm not saying that that is like a uh, a detriment to Ron Howard as a filmmaker, but like seeing a movie that that so resembles something that might have come from Spielberg, especially since we've spent so much fucking time with Spielberg on this show. I'm wondering as I watch this, like, what is the defining element of of Ron Howard's style? I I don't think he necessarily has a trademark. Mm-hmm. I think this this is sort of what what makes him a journeyman filmmaker is that he 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 seems to um, allow himself to be subsumed in the filmmaking process. Like he he approaches each film uh, not necessarily as ron howard would approach the film but like as the film needs to be approached i think Mm -hmm. um even in watching the the behind the scenes stuff for this film the way that he's talking about how he plans to uh you know interconnect all of the various storylines through the visual language i'm like that is very clever visual filmmaking that's really smart and it and it all makes perfect sense but i don't necessarily watch it and go like Oh wow, this this guy is like so in his element and like all the you know, all the gears are turning and he mm-hmm. he has this like unique take that only he could possibly have. It feels like, yeah, that's the appropriate take to have. 
and I and I feel yeah. like that's his approach to 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 a lot of films. And it's not to say that there is anything wrong with that or it's lesser in any way, but it does mean that when you ask yourself the question, "What is a Ron Howard film?" it's a little more difficult to answer it than when you ask yourself the question, "What is a Steven Spielberg film?" Yeah. There's a really cool like humility in this idea that yes. he's just showing up to do the job. And I think as you're explaining, like these categories of filmmakers we have today, like we're kind of missing this, uh, this asset in mm-hmm. American filmmaking of people who just show up to do the job. And it's not all about, you know, them and their style and their voice and their, their brand, their narrative. Well, I mean, well, we it's do, still there do, to an do, extent. We do but. have that kind of filmmaker, but, but they primarily exist in corporate different franchise filmmaking where it's like, you are, you're here to execute the job and, and sure. you, know, you are rewarded for the degree to which you are capable of executing it. That's true. I mean, and of course it's still, I mean, you know, the, the business could not exist without directors who just show up to get the job done especially with the, you know, how much TV is happening. Uh, they yeah. have to exist. Um, anyway, this is the worst story. This is, <laughs> this is the first movie that you see and realize that like, oh, space is not fun. Like, there's yeah. nothing cool about space. <laughs> this is uh, the idea of being untethered from earth and, you know, <laughs> is 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 a terrible terrible thing we're not meant to go out there i mean I, we're, yeah. <laughs> yeah i i love how uh inhospitable it makes space truly feel uh yeah it's so good at that yeah it's it's maybe one of the best films at, at showing like how uh exceptionally bad a place space is <laughs> Yeah, because it it has that kind of you know a, a quality we've we've talked about in other films, especially the the Mission series, where it's so effective at showing you here's how we're going to do this. Here's how the mission will work. We spend a, a fair amount of time on Earth in the in the first act of the film, learning the ins and outs of of, of how the you know space flight is going to work, and we we get these we get things like you know a very cute scene between. Lovell and his son where he's showing him this like model spaceship and you're like hell yeah I love being a kid playing my model spaceship yeah. and like it's yeah. very cute but then you realize like oh he's giving us like full exposition on like how this mission is going to work and like yeah. how it will be successful and and similarly you have these scenes where they're in the the training simulator and we're seeing them have you know like the the mission controls by being like check it out I'm gonna throw a curveball at him let's see how they <laughs> deal with this and they deal with it like flawlessly and you see all the all the ways that this is going to go right and then immediately everything goes wrong and it's so effective in in the way it goes wrong where you're like i understand why this isn't working and i understand how dangerous it is that it is not yeah this i i suppose is the first one of our series that is uh more science fact than science fiction uh yes this is the first one that is is a, a fully true story uh, although i'm sure i don't know i mean I, i'm sure there's a lot of uh there's a lot of it, exaggeration it, happening in this from what i can tell the main uh source of uh you know dramatic uh license in the film comes down to the interpersonal relationships between the three astronauts in the apollo uh oh, in, in, in space and and sort of the 
the heightening of the tension between uh, Swigert and Hayes uh, specifically. This notion that like <laughs> Swigert's a, a you know a rookie, he's unqualified, he shouldn't have been there. And he's that, a bachelor, and, and that he's to blame. Yeah, he's a bachelor who who <laughs> apparently gives them all uh, an STI in space, uh, <laughs> which is a hilarious thing I I missed as a child. Um, but yeah, the, the the arguments between them and and the arguments being being based in this notion that like perhaps this is all Swigert's fault. Uh, that seems to be the, the the main sort of dramatic license. But, you know, uh, we'll, we'll get into it in the production history, but this is not only based on true events, but it is based on Lovell's, you know, direct kind of like consultation on the film. And there's, oh, cool. they, they, they interview everyone that was still around that was involved in this mission. Mm-hmm. And they had people on set to, you know, I think you don't really care about, but I do think you, it is very useful in this film and works really well is to, they have people on set to ensure accuracy throughout the production. Cool. Um, so this is a very true story. Yeah. And I think the fact that it is so truthful, you know, it, it is, it is strapped by that. Uh, for better or for worse, but also the idea that this is, you know, this, this fully happened only makes the story all that more terrifying too. Yeah. I mean, this is the first one of our series that like, these are, are, are real people who experienced space travel. And mm-hmm. when you start to contend with this idea of, of human beings, like, you know, like riding like a bomb out of our atmosphere (laughs) and then drifting in this place that is, you know, totally uncaring and totally like, uh, I mean, it's completely untethered. And then the idea that they have to get back to earth, it's just so compelling. And uh, the ingenuity that had to occur for humans to come back to earth out of this disaster, like unplanned, it's it's just amazing that this happened. And it, it, it inspires like all of this, you know, your imagination goes wild of like, you know, when are we going to get back out there? Like, why, why, why is this not like this happened? Why are we not back on the moon? Why are we not on Mars? Like, why is this not happening right now? Um, but you know, then to contend with, with space travel and all the, the money that it requires and all the issues that are happening mm-hmm. here on earth, it, it, it gets so sad and boring that, like, you know, we can't, we have much bigger issues going on here. I mean, and that was, uh, that was a point of conflict uh, at the time as well. You know, yeah. there were, I, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, uh, you know, we, next week we're going to talk about the, the Apollo 11 mission. We're going to cover yeah. um, Damien Chazelle's first man. And we'll, we'll see in that film the, you know, the people that were protesting the space program basically saying like, you know, you need to fix Vietnam. Like, why are you right. going to space? You know, yeah. and uh, and I think you know that that kind of conflict is always going to be present when thinking about uh, space exploration. And you have to come to this movie uh, kind of accepting that there is sort of like a NASA like propaganda thing happening here. Like, this sure. is not a movie that's going to be introspective of that stuff at all. Uh, whereas right. First Man, I think, is really good to to investigate all of that. I think it's a much more modern, you know, space movie. But which that's is, not which is yeah. why we're discussing them out of uh, you know uh, we're discussing them in release order and not uh, chronological event order. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You don't come to Apollo thirteen looking for that. But if 
if you're here to see like the ingenuity of of the human race then this is a, a really thrilling film and it just has that quality of like once everything goes wrong like you don't want to look away it, yeah it's so compelling yeah i mean i hope it isn't a, a spoiler for for your scene but like i have remembered the uh the co2 um you know scene for like my entire life the, yeah yeah just this this notion of them pouring all this stuff out on the table being like we need to make this fit into this using only this and it's and they and they figure it out and i'm like that is the most amazing thing and they're using like you know the plastic cover from the from like the 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 book that the, the binder that the flight plan <laughs> yeah. is stored in it's amazing uh it's, it's so also good. just like maddening to think that these men were were up there like you know not even with like graphing calculators or anything they're like doing everything by hand on these little binders like these little like yeah. you know like equations like can you like check my math make sure this is correct it's, it's I mean, that, crazy how much the like, unbelievable thing about you know space travel which you know we're saying like it's like we haven't been to the moon in in ages like we we, we can't <sighs> seem to and you know there's horrible tragedies with space shuttles in in recent you know living memory and yeah you yeah. know it's just it's it, we have such difficulty going up there uh the successful missions were were carried out with like the compute power of 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 a notepad and a pen yeah and meanwhile in reality today we're walking around with like you know supercomputers in our pockets that that dwarf yeah the ability of the space i mean there's a moment in this in this film where where Lovell is giving a tour of like NASA HQ and he's saying, you know, the like we're making all these incredible advancements in in scientific technology. Like one day we're gonna have a computer that can fit in a single route. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, there's that, that great scene when everything like like it's shortly after the the shit hits the fan and when they're cutting back to NASA, one of the scientists or, you know, whoever that is down there is literally like dismantling his computer or you know whatever <laughs> primitive form of computer that is and like reassembling it for the task at hand yeah. like he has to like change the hardware to you know do whatever sort of algorithm they need you can just sit and wonder in in the idea that we got up there with with pen and paper mm-hmm. um it's it's truly wild I almost feel like the advancements we have in in scientific technology and and in, and in you know personal and portable computing specifically have made it so that films like this can't really be made anymore unless they're set in a distant past or a distant future where we've like <laughs> changed things up because otherwise the you know obstacles are simply just overcome by like human strength you know. It's like either because right. it's like either the computer works or it doesn't now. That's kind of it. Like that's kind of like the you know we we can't really be rewiring things because it's all just uh, it's all just software and like someone clacking away on a keyboard like isn't particularly compelling for more than like you know fifteen seconds. Well, yeah, I think we're gonna revisit this sort of film in the modern sense a little later in our series when we do Gravity because I think yeah. that that is sort of the comparison point here of a movie about like being untethered in space and trying to get back against all odds. Um, that's not a true story by any means, No, but that is definitely a, a modern take on this with, you know, computers and everything. And 
and uh, also features our old friend George Clooney from last week. Yes, we've got to get Clooney <laughs> back in space. I'm very excited about that. Now, is it is it worth it to address uh, the plot of this film? I feel like a lot of our listeners have probably seen Apollo 13. Maybe just a quick refresher. Yeah, we'll, we'll do we'll do a quick refresher. So you uh, the the film opens with uh, a group of people gathered around watching the Apollo 11 mission uh, successfully land on the moon and this group of people is comprised of uh jim lovell fred hayes and jack swigert who are going to be our our three three main characters in the film they are astronauts who are going to be going to the moon Uh, actually uh gary sinise who plays ken mattingly is supposed to be going on this mission instead of jack swigert but he unfortunately has been exposed to the measles and has no history of either vaccination or uh infection and so they have to pull him from the mission and then of course the dramatic irony is that later on it appears that fred hayes uh seems to get get the measles uh, in outer space or some kind of sickness anyway uh so they are they have this mission to the moon uh they they get moved up because the original crew of the apollo uh 13 mission uh is unable to to go to space uh this was meant to be the crew of the apollo 14 uh and even at this time there's question as to whether or not the apollo 14 would have happened because uh, a congressman played by roger corman uh shows up to uh, <laughs> yeah, potentially put great. a stop to everything he keeps having uh, this. This happens in uh, in Silence of the Lambs too, isn't that Roger Corman? Yes, Corman playing plays, like uh, a plays FBI, one of the FBI guys. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny they keep casting. <laughs> well, I mean, Demi also he's a Corman guy. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and then of course, you know, this is this is the second film we've covered with a with a Rance Howard cameo. The first one was uh, Small Soldiers, but Rance Howard plays the yes. preacher in the in the living room scenes uh, later on. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so they 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 shoot off uh, they shoot off into space, and the the film is sort of set in three locations: the interior of the uh, Odyssey spacecraft uh, slash Athena spacecraft, the interior of the NASA mission control room, and uh, whatever you know living room uh, Jim Lovell's family happens to be in uh, at any given time. And so uh, we are constantly cutting between the people in space trying to figure out how they will survive after everything goes wrong, the people at Mission Control figuring out how they're going to assist them in their survival, and then the friends, family, loved ones, and audience surrogates uh, watching all of this play out on national television, uh, on the radio, and uh, via direct, you know, you know, radio signal from from Mission Control. Yeah, it's a it's a really well structured uh, setup here, and uh, the the you know the constant back and forth between the guys up there and and the guys down there. Um, I feel like for another director, this would be a a pretty difficult task of like you know threading that line and and uh, building the the tension with. Mm-hmm you know, two uh, locations that are like thousands of miles apart or however many miles. And yeah, but he's, I mean, this is the thing, like we've sort of been saying, you know, how it's a journeyman, he he gets the job done, but like he does have clear vision here. You know, he he really does. Oh, he, yeah. His complete, uh, th- th- there is a very singular sort of creative idea at yes. play that, yes. that makes all of this function. Yeah, and I think it's no, you know, surprise that this is one of the most celebrated and beloved and, you know, and one of the probably most like viewed films like in American history, you know, it's like a household name. Everybody fucking knows what this movie is and everyone has seen it. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a reason for that. Yeah. 
and you know we, we should say that when once they get into space we have this sort of tease of like you know things are going to go wrong one of the rockets uh that's propelling them past the atmosphere uh, fails uh, or one of the engines rather uh it's a five engine spacecraft and so they they realize that you know they do they do some quick math on a notepad and realize that if they just keep burning the the fuel a little bit longer they'll they'll make it past mm-hmm. the atmosphere and it'll it doesn't matter that it's failed fine they, yeah they sort of joke that oh i think we've had a a glitch for this mission uh, but the real glitch comes when they have to stir the oxygen tanks on board the ship and a a loose wire uh which has a you know a, a live spark uh ignites when exposed to the oxygen and explodes right. half of the uh the rocket and uh and, and puts everything bad yeah i mean at the time we kind of assume that it's uh like jack's fault that he he seems like the rookie, and they you know it, the film is very smart in angling him as like you know uh, uh, as the younger guy and not maybe not to be trusted, hasn't done his homework maybe. And he's a real horn dog. He's a horn dog, uh, and so you spend the film kind of suspicious of like was it him and you know and and the other astronauts is especially bill paxton's guy fred hayes is very suspicious of this and we don't find out that it's not his fault until truly like the end narration of this film right yeah i mean it's hard to say because i i I know the story so well that I'm just mm-hmm. like, I know it's not his his fault every time I watch the movie. Um, and therefore, when I watch the shots of the like exposed cable or breaker or whatever it is, uh, igniting the oxygen, I don't interpret that as being Swigert's fault because I, I, just, I just sort of see that image and I'm like, yep, there's the exposed thing that is igniting the oxygen. That has happened now. Well, you can take it from me. I, I've seen this a few times through my life and watching it this time. It's, it's been a while since the last time I saw it and watching it this time, I was wondering, wait, was it his fault? I don't remember it being his fault. And then, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he tells you in the end. Yeah. So, yes. The, and, you know, basically just a series of things continue to go wrong because the the issue that they are facing, the the sort of, you know, the draining of the the ship's oxygen supply uh, has this sort of cascading uh, effect on the mission. And, you know, in order to fix one thing, another thing breaks and the tension and stakes get higher and higher and higher. We, you know, they very quickly realize that, you know, they're not going to make it to the moon. And not only are they not going to make it, but they need to now prioritize uh, all of their actions around getting everyone home. And we continue to sort of, you know, jump between these three locations and, you know, feel the the ever-present, you know, stakes of I'm never going to make it back to my family and their families being like, I love these people. I wish they could come home. And the, mm-hmm. you know, the the mission control and the astronauts each doing what they can across a distance of thousands of miles to uh, to try and save save their lives. Um, and 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 it's amazing. I think when we get to First Man next week, we're going to see how truly cut off that these men must be to do missions like this and like Mm -hmm. how far they have to go from the people they love. Um, You know, we spend a lot of time with Lovell's wife in this film and and some other family members. Um, I don't know that the film ever truly uh, like considers just how, how like far these men are. I mean, the idea that like, you would go into space and also have a family here on earth is something that I think first man is like really interested in. And 
there is no reason to think that these men are going to survive in this film. Like, Yo, can yeah. you imagine like being there at the time thinking like, there? what are the, the, the odds that they keep asking, right? I think it's Nixon is, is asking the, uh, the mission control for, for the odds. They eventually give him like three to one odds, even though, I mean, some of the things they have to do to reach Earth uh, is like, as the newscaster shows later in the film, like their spaceship is the size of a basketball, right? And they have to hit something <laughs> the size of... Of, of a piece like, of paper. Yeah. Not like the, the length of a piece of paper, but like the... The, the, uh, yeah, the, the depth. depth. <laughs> yeah. And they hit it. I mean, they hit it's, it, yeah. It's it's it's, it's incredible. Crazy. Yeah. I mean that that that's the thing where where from the moment things go wrong, you are on the edge of your seat. Like, just how the will whole they survive? The yeah. yeah. How how are they going to pull this off? And at every turn, everything they do is like a. This is our only option. It probably won't work. Let's try it anyway. Like for yeah. example, the the mere fact that in order to have enough power to return back to Earth, they have to shut down the command module, meaning the spaceship. They have to turn yeah. the spaceship off, rely on the moon's gravity to slingshot them back in the correct direction, and they have to go and hide out in the lunar module, which is made of basically like tinfoil. Like it is right. not meant to be uh, used for manned spaceflight, you know? No. Um, and of course, having all of this turned off means that the thing is getting colder and colder and colder it's it's essentially freezing which yeah. also then carries the risk of it might not turn back on because the chemical reaction in that takes place inside a battery might not be physically possible at a certain temperature yes and the notion that's always like you know at the doorstep here that if something goes wrong and they lose power that they you know if they get stuck the kind of death that these three men will have is 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 like horrifying. Like, yeah, they're gonna freeze to death in space, or they're just gonna or run out of food. They'll, they'll asphyxiate, or, asphyxiate. They'll yeah. starve. You know, it's it's this incredible thing where like the film is so good at explaining the sort of like the conditions of the risk. You know, it's it's very effective in that way. And there's no greater like terror than than the terror of just like floating in this black abyss with nothing to grab onto it's yeah once they start yeah once things like once the windows gloss over and and uh and they start freezing up is when you really start to realize like yeah i mean these men have no chance there's no way they're going to get back and the fact that they were going to break through earth's atmosphere in in the thing that was meant to just land on the moon, right? Mm -hmm. It's the Odyssey that they end up using to get back, right? Well, the the Odyssey is, I believe, what they would have used to get back uh, all along. It's the but but the thing that they they do that is the thing they never should have been doing is is a uh, existing in the Lem for anything other than uh, dropping right. down to the moon, uh, and and b uh, they use the Lem's thrusters, which are meant for just you know slight like realignments as it descends right, to the moon right. they use that to realign the lem and the command module uh so that it will be able to you know send that basketball through that piece of paper um because they have to they have to eyeball their trajectory and and make the calculations by hand to make sure that they will do that effectively and and they have to use that 
that Lem thruster to line it up. And, and that, of course, is like this amazing bit of filmmaking where you've seen them in the simulator. You've seen them sort of like coming up against these these fake scenarios where like, okay, the Lem and the Kamar module are drifting mm-hmm. apart. How are you going to line them back up? And, right. you know, um, Mattingly is like a master of getting it correct. But like, you know, Swiger is, is not quite as uh, adept at it. And yeah. then... And then we find ourselves here in the sort of like the ultimate, you know, challenge. And uh, and I, I think it's it's is it it's either Lovell or Hayes who's like, you know, we don't have a, a point of reference. And then one of them is like, actually, we can we can look out the window and look just, at just Earth. Earth. And if we just yeah. look at Earth, that will be a constant in this equation. <laughs> ah man, it's amazing. It's great. Yeah, it's it's, 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 it's so good. Um, classic American filmmaking. It is, and I also feel like this this notion of. Uh, this thing of like being untethered. This is so why I wanted to explore this genre with you on this show. Yeah. I, I feel like the stuff that, that we've been gravitating towards as a show, like the, the kind of like, I think it, for, from my perspective, like the highlights of, of areas we've gotten to explore, it's like mm-hmm. Xenomorph Summer and Winter Hell. Mm-hmm. This is the cross section of both things. <laughs> like yeah. this series is the cross section of both of these ideas. Truly cold up there. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, so of course they, they make it back to earth and, uh, and everybody hugs and, uh, and most of these men retire and choose never to, uh, to, to go out into the void ever again, uh, for good and obvious reason. I imagine (laughs) they, uh, live the rest of their lives with, uh, deep traumas that us earthly beings will never truly understand. (laughs) Yeah. And not just, not just them, but everyone in the, um, mission control also. Um, there's, uh, there's a moment, uh, in the, in the behind the scenes where they are, some of the behind the scenes is like actual behind the scenes of the filmmaking. And some of it Mm -hmm. is like the archival footage they have access to of the actual mission. Mm -hmm. And some of it is like research video they took where they interviewed like, you know, the real people involved. And and it's a combination of like, we're cutting this in because it's a good interview clip for our behind mm-hmm. the scenes clip. But also it's just, this is what they used for research in the writing and, and in the production. And there's an interview with, with Gene Krantz, who is uh, the Ed Harris character uh, in Mission Control. And he, uh, he gets very emotional and kind of like breaks uh, as he is describing, you know, uh, the stakes of all of this. And apparently Howard showed that clip to uh, to Ed Harris and was like, what do you think? And and Harris is like, are you saying you want me to do that? And he's like saying, well, it couldn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah, this is, this is, you know, decades after the events and, and, and the, the mere act of discussing it is, you know, it, br- it brings about that level of emotion in these men who are, you know, essentially, you know, I guess they're, they exist in the cross, the cross section of like military and science, you know, yeah. as, as analytical and logic driven as, as, uh, as your profession could be. I mean, this film makes a good argument for like reasons against space travel for like why this is not something that humans like should be doing. Maybe and, these and ships yet it's should been not. an incredible recruitment tool for NASA. <laughs> Like maybe it should not be manned space travel. Maybe we should just send, you know, machines up there. And it, it kind of feels like uh, in Back to the Future when he keeps looking at that picture and uh, family members are like fading away. Like that, <laughs> as the years go on here on Earth and things continue to get worse here and, you know, the poverty gap continues to to widen, I just feel like the chances of us 
doing something like this again with all the risk that entails, uh, it, they, they start to fade away. I mean, after watching a movie like this, it's like, why are you going to send someone up there so they can like bring some rocks back here <laughs> after I mean, all that we I've just watched and how terrifying and, and difficult it is. But at the same time, like if we're ever going to, you know, evolve as a species, we're certainly going to need to get past earth. Right. As we talked about in 2001, like <laughs> that's the thing, you know, uh, I, I got to find the quote and I feel like it'll be more relevant when we get to interstellar, but mm -hmm. this notion of like, when we stop, looking to the stars like we're doomed you know it's like when we stop yeah. when we stop looking at the infinite possibilities and trying to explore and, and study them uh we are kind of admitting defeat you know yeah i mean you were just saying uh off mic about uh, uh you're you're looking at your potential computer purchase as an aspirational thing of <laughs> like <laughs> i'm going to buy a very super powered computer for uh, all the things I aspire to make in my career mm -hmm. and uh, you must aspire to things right yeah <laughs> why don't we talk about how this dazzling spectacle uh, was put together in the first place whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness all in a single sugar-free stick Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Whether you're shipping 100 packages a month or thousands, ShipStation lets you automate routine shipping tasks and easily handle returns. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications with ShipStation's easy-to-use dashboard. Plus, you can access industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce businesses with ShipStation, and 98% of companies that stick with ShipStation for a year become customers for life. Optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code WONDERY today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code WONDERY. Apollo 13 flight controllers, give me a go-no-go no, go for launch. You know that Easter vacation trip we had planned for Acapulco? Uh-uh. Procedures. Go. Control. Go flight. There might be a slight change in destination. Really? Maybe say the moon. <gasps> Booster. Go. Retro. Or go flight. GNC. We're go. And I take the controls and I steer it around. FAO. We're go flight. For a nice, soft landing on the moon. Better than Neil Armstrong. Does it bother you that the public regards this flight as routine? There's nothing routine about flying to the moon. I can vouch for that. Launch control, this is Houston. We are go for launch. The clock is running. Houston, we have cleared the tower at 1313. 
going to the moon. This is the crew of the Apollo 13, wishing everyone back on Earth uh, a pleasant evening. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. We got a wicked shimmy up here. Houston, we are venting something out into space. It's definitely a gas of some sort. It's like the heart rates are skyrocketing. The Apollo 13 spacecraft is apparently losing breathing oxygen. The emergency has ruled out any chance of a lunar landing. Why are there so many people here? Something broke on your daddy's spaceship. I have a request from the news people. Take it up with my husband. He'll be home. On Friday. Slightly, I've lost the radio contact. Econ, what's your data telling you? It's, it's reading a quadruple failure. That can't happen. It's, it's got to be instrumentation. The ship's bleeding to death. This rate, we're going to skip right out of the atmosphere, and we're never going to get back. But we're looking at less than 15 minutes of life support in the Odyssey. We never lost an American in space. We're sure as hell not going to lose one on my watch. Odyssey, do you read me? How long does it take to power up the limb? Three hours by the checklist. We don't have that much time. Apollo 13, written by William Broyles Jr. and Al Reinert, directed by Ron Howard, with cinematography by Dean Cundy, who we have discussed at length on this show. Edited by Dan Hanley and Mike Hill, starring Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, Kevin Bacon, Gary Sinise, Kathleen Quinlan, and Ed Harris. So, Jim Lovell, who is the man who is eventually portrayed by Tom Hanks in this film, mm-hmm. but the real astronaut from the Apollo 13 mission, he uh, he's approached a number of times to to write about his experience during the Apollo 13 mission. Uh, he gets approached to write books by publishers. He gets approached by NBC to write a TV film. Uh, and Johnny Carson uh, also at some point approaches him uh, about making a film. And he turns down all of these offers. Uh Eventually, he gets a letter from Jeffrey Kluger, who is an instructor at NYU, uh, saying that he wants him to write a book about Apollo 13. And Lovell finally kind of relents, and he writes a manuscript for the first chapter and an outline for the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. And they turn this into a, a book proposal. And uh, no formal agreements have actually been made for anyone to write a proper book. It's just this, this, this proposal and this outline and this, and this singular chapter. So keep all of that in mind as we move forward here. Uh, separately from all of this, Brian Grazer, who is uh, Ron Howard's producing partner at Imagine Entertainment. Mm-hmm. He the guy has, with the hair. The, yes, the guy with the hair. <laughs> um, he has become interested in making a film about Apollo 13 because Michael Bostick, who is a colleague of his at Imagine, uh, is related to Jeremy Bostick, who was the flight dynamics officer for the Apollo 13 mission. And he, you know, is is just getting them excited about the notion of, you know, we should do an Apollo 13 film. And like, I have this personal connection to the story and 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 is like telling them anecdotes about his father. And, and they're like, wow, we got to we got to get, you know, we got to do this. And so they hear that Lovell is is writing a book and they and they chase after him for the rights. Um, and Lovell uh, says of a, a conversation he had with his agent around this time, uh, he said, We sent you a proposal, just that one chapter, out to our office in California. They passed it around to various movie production companies. There was a bidding war on it, and Imagine Entertainment currently has the bid to do a movie based on your book. And Lovell says to him, I haven't written it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Such a boring, like, society we live in that a fucking astronaut needs an agent. (laughs) It's so funny. (laughs) 
I have to talk to my agent. <laughs> Dude was in space. <laughs> it's true. It's a good point. But you know they say, you know they say when astronauts come back from space, they smell like hamburgers, and no one knows why. Really? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I've never heard of this. Yeah, that's really gross. <laughs> All kinds of weird things happen to them up there. I think they come back a little taller, right? Yeah, because there's no longer any gravity pushing down on them. Um, but also they lose bone density. Out. Yeah, it's crazy. We're not yeah. meant to be out there. It's no. very bad for a human to it's go out there. very bad for a human to yeah. be out there. Yeah. It's probably very good for your back, though. Maybe I should get out there. Oh, yeah. I feel like that's your final destination, I think. I've discussed it many times. I wish to be shot into space. Uh, no, no, no. Not, a large cannon. Not before your death, I feel like you'll be drifting <laughs> out there peacefully. Maybe I can, be a, I can be a PA on the, uh, the Doug Lyman, Tom Cruise film that they shoot aboard the ISS. Oh, my God. I was thinking about that movie the entire time I was watching this, thinking, what the fuck is Tom Cruise going to be doing out there? <laughs> and how great would it be if there is an Apollo 13-esque event when Tom Cruise tries to go out there? And then we get, you know, because they have all the cameras, they're going to yeah, film a documentary like, about it. Yeah, but then, roll. then they'll go back out there and Cruise will <laughs> and play that. himself in a narrative dramatization of the entire thing. <laughs> fuck. This is now I mean, my, my dream. <laughs> After everything that we see happen to these astronauts uh, and like the requirements of a person being able to go out there, uh, I mean, is, is Cruz, I mean, I guess he's not that old. Like, can he physically do this? Like, don't you have to be like a scientist to get out there? Uh, I, I, I mean, look, I, I can't say that I, I have all the answers here, but my assumption is uh, number one, they're going to pay NASA uh, quite a lot of money to be allowed mm-hmm. to do this. Uh, number two, Tom Cruise is perhaps one of the most physically fit people on Earth um, <laughs> as a result of whatever uh, terrifying contract he's made with Xenu. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I cannot imagine that they will be putting Tom Cruise uh, in a situation he cannot get himself out of. That's that's his entire deal, is that he, he pushes himself to the absolute extreme limit of human existence and uh, not only survives but captures it for your entertainment so i'm i'm certain that uh it will probably go fine is he they're gonna do it on the iss i thought they were just gonna do one of these like low orbit things that billionaires do or you know no i think the whole thing is that they're gonna shoot a portion of the film aboard the ISS. I'm sure they will be utilizing uh, the technique that we, we're we going to talk about uh, as we go through this history, this production history, um, affectionately nicknamed the Vomit Comet. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure they will, they'll use that for, for pieces of it, but I'm sure they'll also use plenty of digital effects. And I'm sure that they will, you know, it, it'll be the, the kind of thing where you, you won't be able to tell what was shot where is, is my, is my guess. God, it is fucking wild. They're going to, put that man aboard the ISS. What level of military clearance does Tom Cruise have? I need to know. I need to prepare accordingly. Anyway, back to reality here. Um, So they imagine wins the rights to adapt this book proposal. Uh, And so because it's just a proposal, they don't actually have the story uh, they they get Lovell in for a series of of interviews, uh, 
and and Howard says, we acquired the rights. I remember we were sitting in the conference room with Jim Lovell and we were going to hear him tell us more because it was just a proposal at that point. And we sat around for this riveting couple of hours and he kind of casually said it, but he said, and that's the point when I said, Houston, we have a problem. But he said it in a way that was, you could tell it was bringing him back to, I don't want to alarm people, but it's real. Uh, mm-hmm. And so this conversation is is where that line, uh, how that oh, line so makes, cool. its, makes itself into the, into the screenplay. <laughs> yeah. So Howard hires uh, William Broyles Jr., who is a journalist and founding editor of Texas Monthly, and Al Reiner, who is a, a journalist at the Houston Chronicle and, and also Texas Monthly, and hires them to write the film. Uh, Reinert himself had actually also directed the 1990 documentary For All Mankind, uh, which is about the, the mm-hmm. space program and the, the Apollo 11 mission, uh, and, is a, and is an Academy Award nominated film. The initial stages of the script, so again, keep in mind, these are journalists and they've made a documentary, one of them has made a documentary about, you know, manned space flight. The initial script, want yeah. to take a, take a guess at uh, what it was very heavy on? <laughs> I, I truly don't know. Uh, well, it was incredibly uh, heavy on the technical details of a manned mission to space, uh, uh, which resulted in a screenplay that was around a whopping 500 pages. Oh, my God. It's all <laughs> about, like, the, the value of, like, X squared. <laughs> yeah, it, it has it has everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, but despite all of that, uh, Howard ends up basically crying uh, when he reads this first draft. He says that he was uh, on a commuter train from uh, New York to Connecticut and... Uh, and cried right there in the middle of the... Uh, wow, of, good of, place of to cry. Sad people on trains, you know, yeah. my second favorite genre of filmmaking. <laughs> um, Howard uh, goes to Mission Control. He meets the Mission Control members who work on the Apollo 13. And uh, this experience lets him understand that this is not just a survival uh, story. You know, it's not just a space survival movie. It is a rescue film. It's it's all about the people trying to uh, survive, but it's also all about the people who are trying to rescue them. Uh, and that mission control uh, is filled with characters and not just faceless people. Yeah, he does. I mean, that that is, I feel like, the challenge of this film is is humanizing all of these people who are uh you know mathematicians and scientists and like military personnel and it's, i i feel like truly easy to empathize with the people out in space but to right. you know create a through line and and a, a relatable you know group of people in mission control must have been extremely challenging and yeah. like without like getting uh you know buried in all of the logistical madness that must have happened uh just telling like a human story about these these folks yeah that's what i think this film is is so you know exceptional at yeah i mean he's able to do it in such like wonderful small moments like for example you know and i i don't remember the character name but there's um one of these many like bespectacled uh gentlemen yeah. <laughs> is sort of like he's he he interrupts the meetings and he's just like all of the ideas you have are going to fail because they're going to run out of, you know, battery power. And yeah, you know, so yeah. they're, they're working on these ideas for like, okay, like how, how much battery power do they have left? And there's a, there's a coffee machine right in front of them. And he goes about enough to power that for eight hours. Oh and it's just like that kind of tiny moment that yeah. um, it's so grounded and so human and relatable mm-hmm. and so terrifying. You know, it's, he's yeah. so good at these little moments. The details I, he's the amps guy. I always think of him as the amps guy. Yeah, he's, he's the he's amps talking guy. about the amps. Yeah, uh, Ed Harris 
uh, as the the man who succeeds in saving these astronauts just by yelling at his employees. <laughs> like his his big thing is like, I don't care uh, what you say. Whatever you think is impossible must be possible. Fuck you. <laughs> and he it. succeeds. Yeah. But uh, the detail of him, uh, he's putting on his special vest that his wife got him. So good. It's like this nice white vest, and everyone's like, "Cool vest, man!" Like, and, and she <laughs> and she apparently makes him one for every single mission. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. great. It's, yeah, it's it, such it, a such a good detail. And there's yeah. also the uh, the 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 presence of Ron Howard's brother. Uh, what's his name? Uh, is it Clint Howard? Who plays? Oh my god, that's right. Yeah. Um, god, what is his name? Yeah, Clint uh, yeah, Howard. Clint Howard. Yeah. Yeah. He plays. I completely uh, forgot that was his brother. <laughs> He plays the man who, uh, after Kevin Bacon's character talks about uh, not filing his tax returns, Clint Howard's like, wow, that, that's a big deal. They're going to come after you. Like, shouldn't be saying that out loud. And then Nixon pardons him. Yeah. He's like, oh, this guy's probably going to die. Let's pardon him. Yeah. It's amazing. Um I mean, there's there's so many other moments like this that are, are so effective uh, at giving you like character and, and humanity. And this is outside of Mission Control, but it gives you character and humanity, but it also gives you like world building where you have um, uh, Lovell's daughter who is like, you know, becoming obsessed with, uh, <laughs> you know, the the music and culture of, yeah. of the time period. And she's like listening to uh, to Janis Joplin and <laughs> she wants to she wants to dress as a hippie when she right. she leaves the house. And she's and mad she's, at Paul. Yeah, she's Beatles. more upset about the Beatles breaking up than she is about her dad being trapped in space. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so good. Yeah. Um, it all works. It all, it all works so well. Um, speaking of, uh, you know, actors in the film uh when it comes to casting the movie they they ask themselves the question who does the planet want to save the most and they come up with the answer tom hanks and so that is immediately they know that they want they want hanks uh in in the film uh Lovell, on the other hand, wanted Kevin Costner to play him because he thought that when he was the age that he was in Apollo 13, he looked very similar to Kevin Costner, which at first I'm just like, yeah, all right, mate. You know, I like to think I look like Kevin Costner uh, at that age as well. But then I looked at the the footage and like, actually, there is some pretty striking similarity. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a, ba- not a bad, uh, not a bad comp. This is uh, uh, Hanks is. I mean, all of them are really like in their their babe era here. <laughs> this, this is uh, this is nineteen ninety five. So mm-hmm. Hanks has already done Forrest Gump. He's already done uh, Philadelphia, Sleepless in Seattle, League of Their Own. Like, I feel like this is like the prime era of like lovable doofus turned. I mean, like, this is you know, yeah. This this is again. This is that transition point where we were sort of talking about in mm-hmm. Toy Story, where he's going from being America's boyfriend to being America's dad. And I think that proving that you can captain a spaceship and and make yeah. it back home to Earth that is a ultimate dad move. Dad, that's true. Uh, keep in mind this. Toy Story is also ninety five. So. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's yeah, the same same exact back back. period. You know, this this is the transition, and and again, it's it's you've got male in in ninety eight is the last time he plays a, a purely romantic <laughs> lead. But uh, I mean, all of them though. This is a, a movie full of babes. Kevin <laughs> Kevin Bacon, Bill yes. Paxton, Gary Sinise is like like built looks, for some reason. He's a. I mean, I sent you the photos from the behind the scenes. He looks 
he looks much better in the film than he does in the box. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> he looks really <laughs> ill. He looks like he's caught the measles, actually. But he's like ripped in this movie. Yeah. And of course, Ed Harris with that vest. I mean, if you're looking for babes, this is, this is, <laughs> this is the movie for you. Um, I, uh, I shot Kevin Bacon a few years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, and he was uh, just the fucking coolest. Like, yeah, I always he, hear that about him. Yeah, he was so nice and 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 cool and down to earth. Uh, but also one of those guys that is like so aware of their like power over a room, so aware of their <laughs> charisma, and uh, like even in just like you know miking him up for the for the shoot, like just the kind of thing where like he's telling he's like making jokes about it and pausing the exact right amount of time for you to catch that he's making a joke laugh at it and then hand it back to him it's like god this guy fucking rules uh this may be apocryphal but allegedly um kevin bacon when he gets to a wedding or any event that's dj'd he pays the dj not to play the footloose theme i believe it (laughs) So so they want Hanks and uh coincidentally Hanks at the same time that they are preparing to make Apollo 13 is talking to his manager about wanting to make an Apollo 13 film. He's like that's one of those stories that he wants to wants to be involved in and so uh Howard and and Hanks set a meeting just a few days after after uh, Hanks learns about the the film and that and that Howard uh you know wants to cast him and halfway through the meeting Howard turns to him and says you know I really hope you do this. I'm definitely doing this movie. And 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 Hanks just turns back to him and goes, yeah, what the hell? I'm doing it too. <laughs> the, uh, it's an iconic pair. It's a, it's a his, history-making pair here. Mm-hmm. This film, you know, we, we're sort of joking about like, uh, you know, America's dad and, and all that. Mm-hmm. But, but I do feel like this film is the one where like, it, it feels like such the precursor to a lot of the work that Hanks ends up doing with Spielberg. Yeah. And, and uh, to an extent... Uh, I mean, kind of sets the precedent, I think, too, for Castaway, which is another big one. Very similar film to uh, to this one in in many ways. I mean, yeah, he follows this up like pretty quickly with all of these fucking hits. Mm-hmm. Saving Private Ryan comes out three years later. Then yep. The Green Mile, Castaway, Band of Brothers, Catch Me If You Can. I mean, what a fucking career this guy has had. Yeah. Like, you know, everyone knows him as like, he's the one like celebrity in Hollywood who seems like a nice guy. But like, just pound for pound, like when you look at what he's done as a as an actor and producer, he's, yeah, a, a, a true living legend. It's crazy. Yeah. So Lovell uh, met with Hanks and, uh, and, you know, to, to sort of, you know, teach him about the character and, and, and uh, et cetera. And one of the things that he does is uh, he, he takes Hanks up in his airplane. Mm. Uh, he says, I, I took him up one night in my plane, a Baron twin engine six passenger. In space flight, it's always nighttime. And in the back seat, I had a cutout that simulated the commander's window of the lunar module. It was dark over West Texas. I told Hanks to look out the window to get an idea of what it was like in space. I also wanted to give him the feeling of being a test pilot. So I did a series of stools, dives, Dutch rolls, and fugoids, which is an oscillating longitudinal aeronautic maneuver. Uh, And he said that that those were all things he had learned as a, as a Navy test pilot. So he really like, he teaches, uh, he teaches Hanks, like, this is what it feels like to to be in space. (laughs) And this is what it feels like to have, you know, lived my past. 
It, it, he teaches Hanks how to be afraid. <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, probably useful material for Hanks to draw on. I'm going to take America's most beloved actor and... Uh, and maybe kill him. Terrify him, yeah. <laughs> take him up in my plane. Yeah. Unaware that Hanks had already been been cast in the film, Travolta, uh, John Travolta apparently reached out to Ron Howard uh, in the hopes that he would get to play Jim Lovell. Yeah, I um, saw that. Yeah. Um, he, he said, I wouldn't trade my career with anybody's, but I'd trade a few movies with Tom Hanks, Apollo 13 and Forrest Gump. But other than that, I love my career. <laughs> Where is Travolta at this time? Let's see. This yeah, is 95. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, this would, this would fall in his, his, his resurgence in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, Broken Arrow in 96 phenomenon michael wow it's all 96 get shorty is 95 face off 97 wow uh and then he played basically plays uh bill clinton in primary colors in 98 <laughs> um howard actually asks gary sinise to read just for like kind of all the roles he's like you can you know read for any of these we'll you know we'll figure <laughs> out who, you, who you're going to be and and sinise you know gravitates towards uh ken mattingly and that's the role he gets uh, John Cusack is approached for uh, Fred Hayes, but he turns it down because he wants to avoid uh, blockbuster filmmaking. Uh, so uh, Bill Paxton gets the gig, and Brad Pitt also was uh, he was he was offered the role before Kevin Bacon, uh, but uh, but turned it down to play uh, to to play the detective in Seven. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, you can totally see Brad Pitt doing this part. Yeah, <laughs> and we will we'll be spending some time with Pitt in space later in this series as well. Yes, we will. Um, Pitt said, I was talking to my mum the other night and she said, I just saw the best movie. It's called Apollo 13. She said, you have to do more movies like this. And I said, mum, I turned that down for seven. Wait till you see that movie. (laughs) God, I love seven. Yeah. Seven rules, but not a mum movie. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not. Uh, Hanks, Paxton, Bacon, Sinise and Howard went to, uh, a NASA space camp in, uh, in Huntsville, Alabama. And they did training exercises inside the simulated command module and lunar module uh, with Jim Lovell uh, and also David Scott, who was the commander of the Apollo 15. The actors learned the various functions of the 500 switches, toggles and buttons that operate a spacecraft, which I think really shows because at a certain point I had written in my notebook, this movie makes pressing buttons dramatic. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I, I think uh, I think this training uh, plays a role in that. It reminds me of those stories about uh, Harrison Ford being in the Millennium Falcon, and like there not really being any like like logical like con- controls in front of them. Mm-hmm. It's like, what do I touch? Like, there's just like buttons and switches. Like, how how do you want me to pretend to fly this ship? <laughs> and I wonder if he is already a pilot at that point. Oh, true. Because, <laughs> you know, we, we all know he's into that. I mean, sim- I mean, I imagine this is why Travolta wants to be in this film is because he's a pilot. And he's obsessed with, with, uh, with planes oh, and anger and runway mm-hmm. and all that. Jerry Griffin, the Apollo 13 flight director, said, the actors in the movie were like sponges when it came to absorbing the information that Jerry Bostick and I passed on to them. We ran a little mission control school for them and they kept asking questions, getting the next level of detail and then the next. That kind of work shows up in the film. Mm. So... Enter the Vomit Comet, uh, the uh, KC-135 Zero-G aircraft. Uh, Howard, Bacon, Hanks, and Paxton uh, all go up in this plane uh, at first to uh, get an understanding of how zero gravity would feel. Uh, the plane, the way this works, is that it flies in a parabola. 
it starts at a 45 degree angle pitches up over 25,000 feet and as it's pitching over that parabola the actors uh, enter a state of free fall oh i see um apparently the pilots were very impressed with how well the crew and actors handled the experience and after this sort of test they they start to kind of figure you know could we actually film sequences in the movie kevin bacon said ron comes up to me and says well spielberg had an idea he had an idea he wants us to go up there he thinks we should go film there i don't know if we can do it but we'll check in with nasa uh, and eventually, uh, uh, Dan Golding at NASA agrees to allow production to to use the plane uh, for production. So when they enter a state of free fall, it, it simulates low gravity. It, it, I mean, they, there is no gravity when they are in free fall. Yeah. And how many minutes are they able to to sustain that? Yeah. So the KC-135 uh, is used for... Uh, any shot where you can see the full body of the actor in zero G. Otherwise oh, wow. so they use it a lot. Yeah. Otherwise they're, they're, they're faking it. Um, and so they apparently flew 612 uh, missions, uh, 612 of these parabolas, uh, which totals about three hours and 54 minutes of weightlessness. And each of those parabolas, they get about 27 seconds uh, of that zero G effect. That's it. Yeah, just oh twenty-seven God. seconds. Yeah, and 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 Hank said of that experience, um, for twenty-seven seconds or so, it's like swimming, except you can breathe and you don't go anywhere when you kick. It was truly wow. extraordinary and also physically jarring. If you didn't take the little medication they gave you, you could get very physically sick. Hence the name <laughs> Vomit Comet. Although by the time we were at the end of the shoot, we didn't need it quite so much. We'd become used to the physical sensations. It was magical, a glorious free fall. Wow. Yeah. I, I think these days, uh, what they're doing with these billionaires who want to experience space is like, they're going into like low orbit. It's not just mm-hmm. free fall, right? It's not just like a 27 second. No, thing. no, no. I it's not a parabola. It's they, they are, yeah. they've, they've got a, a, a craft specifically designed to kind of fly through that, uh, low gravity, mm-hmm. uh, zone. Yeah. Which I imagine they're going to be using a lot of when they do this alleged Tom Cruise in space. I I would assume so. Yeah, I assume it would be something like that. Uh, Hanks added that um, if you added up all of the 27 increments of when we were weightless, we actually had more zero G time than John Glenn did in the first space flight. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Because they did about 300 of them, right? They did 612 of these. So they 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 have a total of almost four hours of weightlessness. Jeez. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. So yeah. they're doing more than one in a day, for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Unless they yeah. were shooting for like two years and <laughs> doing it every day. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, and, and Hank said, you know, for actors, being able to actually shoot in zero gravity as opposed to being in incredibly painful and uncomfortable harnesses for special effects shots was all the difference between what would have been a horrible movie-making experience as opposed to the completely glorious one that it actually mm. was. You think they go up in the plane and then it does like a few parabolas so they don't have to like go down and then go up? <laughs> you know, I couldn't get a a clear explanation of that, but I, I would imagine to, that they right? can do a couple before they have to yeah. land. Yeah. And actually for that shot of uh, of Bill Paxton throwing up where the, the vomit comes out and like floats, yeah. um, they, they had to do that uh, 12 times before they got it right. 
That's that's wow. a full 12 takes. And and Paxton right. was saying that the way that that would work is that he had this little flask full of fake vomit. And so they'd be like, they'd be going up in the, the parabola and he would have to try and, you know, drink the fake vomit so that he could puke it out once they were in zero G. But because they're going so fast and at such an intense angle, the liquid is like pushed down to the bottom of the flask. And oh my God. Every time it was a struggle to, to get it in his <laughs> mouth. She just actually vomited. I'm sure it wouldn't have been too hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and David Scott, who was commander of the Apollo fifteen and the seventh man to to work to walk on the moon, uh, he was the technical advisor for all of these uh, these scenes in the spacecraft. Cinematographer Dean Cundy discussed choosing to film on spherical lenses versus anamorphic. He said, "We didn't choose it anamorphic because of the depth of field uh, and how close you can focus a lens is limited. So just meaning that." Every lens you shoot with has a uh, a specific minimum close focus distance, which refers to the closest point that a subject or object can get to the camera and still be uh, placed in focus, that you can still rack focus to them. Right. And okay. with anamorphic lenses, that distance is further away than with spherical lenses. And uh, Cundy and Howard said that um, he, they talked about being aware of not putting the camera outside the capsule, not physically breaking the, uh, the fourth wall. He said, yeah. we didn't want the audience to ever feel the camera. It was in a place that it couldn't be in real life. So we consciously made a choice to go Super 35 uh, and use spherical lenses that would allow us to put the camera and the lens plane in the capsule or inside the wall of the capsule so it's it's yeah. never like really really far away it's never it's never in a place that it really couldn't be yeah there is this this kind of great like verite feeling when they are mm-hmm. in space um and there's this very distinct uh different style that that the events are sh- are shown to us um from when they're down in the mission control it, yeah I, I think it is a very distinct choice on howard's part to go from um you know mostly everything down on earth is filmed on sticks right and on tripod well yeah know, I mean, dollies not, not on or, sticks, you know. but, but on stable yeah it's, it's yeah. all stable camera motion and, and right. here it's all like handheld or it's frozen right, right. it's great yeah. yeah and it's very it's very intimate you know which i think is necessary yeah it's just these three guys in this tiny little space and this camera's right in their face it's great i love it Howard worked with production designer Michael Corenblith and set decorator Meredith Boswell to create two lunar modules and two command modules. These sets were built to have different removable sections for the purpose of filming. The actors mainly acted in these for close-ups and had to mime the zero-G effects. So anytime you're seeing like a close-up of like a hand or an arm or, a, or you know, just like their heads and necks, they are doing this, uh, you know, in these, these, these sets in the studio space and just kind of like waving their, their bodies around <laughs> and pretending to be in zero G, which I think is uh, really fucking funny. I was, uh, uh, I think a, a sketch on one of these teams I was on a while back was I think we were going to do like a space sketch and like the vague direction from our director was just like, you know, just like act like you're in space. 
<laughs> and it looks like you it's it's so stupid looking when you have like a, a group of actors doing that on the stage that I think the sketch got cut like it, you just you can't even like like uh, attempt to do anything uh, coherent when the actors are just kind of like whoa I'm in space like everyone's just sort of like miming floating that's really funny and so that's I mean, what they're doing it's, it's, in it's this, like someone right? it's like someone being like I'm in slow motion right know. yeah or underwater yeah <laughs> but yeah that's what they're doing in this that's you know, so funny <laughs> multi-million dollar blockbuster it's so funny how stupid filmmaking gets like yeah. when you when you really look into like what they had to do it's like god oh, you know just like move your hand slowly up and down it'll it'll work yeah <laughs> and it does yeah. it completely works yeah um on the complete opposite end of the spectrum of production techniques uh because they didn't want to use uh uh, visual effects to show the 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 astronaut's breath uh, mm-hmm. in the in the cold vacuum of space. They had the uh, stage set to thirty eight degrees for uh, for a full oh, wow. three weeks. That must have fucking sucked. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was cold enough that you could see their breath. One of my biggest biggest like triggers as a person with anxiety is being in a high stress scenario in like frozen cold there's just <laughs> nothing worse for me because your body's already like on edge and jittering and then you put so it like into you, you know deep stress yes you, you feel like you're like already living in panic attack symptoms i, I would not have made it through <laughs> this production <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean kind of the opposite but like one of the worst production experiences i ever had was we were shooting in a uh in like an indoor swimming pool and it was heated so that the actors and the and the camera op wouldn't like freeze. Mm-hmm. Um, and because uh, you know being in cold water is like so unpleasant. So it's a heated yeah. pool. And uh, I guess for insurance reasons, they had recent they had they had to like make sure you know that the it has the right amount of chlorine and like all the salts mm-hmm. and all this. So they've like just put like fresh chlorine in there. They've upped the temperature of the water to like eighty degrees. And it's indoors and enclosed. Oh my god! And like, like in like a jacuzzi, <laughs> dude. It was. Uh, I was just standing on the out the edge of the pool, like taking notes for the director, and like, I you know, I I thought I was gonna pass out from just like <laughs> it was so humid, and the the chemical was like you know evaporating Ugh. out yeah, of the water the into the air. It was just horrible. Sounds um, like it probably looked great though with all that steam. It did look cool. Yeah. <laughs> Corinblith and Boswell, uh, they also rebuilt Mission Control and apparently uh, they rebuilt it within six inches of its real life counterpart and uh, and also gave the set uh, a rear screen projector. Jeremy Bostick, who we, we already mentioned uh, and was the Apollo 13 uh, you know, flight dynamic officer, he says, Ron is an absolute fanatic about every little detail. I would spend 14 hours a day here and I'd leave and I'd go look for the elevator because the real control center in Houston was up on the third floor and I'd forget this thing is so real. Yeah, this is one of the better ones of our series, I think, that really uh, gets into just, yeah, like how like dumb space is. Like <laughs> like it it is so compelled by the actors performances and so disinterested in like them being, you know, in like the, the blue Danube, like 2001 Mm -hmm. 
there's nothing beautiful about space in this film Un- in, unless it's like for the actors, like for the characters to have their moments of like, look, there's the moon. That's where we could have landed. But you mm-hmm. just see it through this tiny slot. There's no like spectacle out there for them in this movie. And I, th- I like, I really, I, I really enjoy that after coming off of like Solaris and, and 2001, which is so just enamored in like how poetic space travel is. Yeah. This one is like, it's not like we are up here again with pens and papers, you know, untethered from earth and everything is terrible. <laughs> like we are in this crushing void. <laughs> yeah. It's and this the- sentiment of like, don't you dare say this is beautiful because like... <laughs> we make one wrong move and we're going to like freeze to death in space. Yeah. And the, the contrast of that with the mission control is so effective because they, they've made it so, uh, so real and lived in. Like it's, it's unbelievable that the, the people that worked on the actual mission are in the set and they're like, Oh wait, this isn't, this isn't the real thing, you know? And like by it, 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 it helps sell all of the ideas of the film so brilliantly. Um, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like uh like what we were talking about in Top Gun that like they're yes. actually doing all this stuff and like there is some sort of quality maybe it's unconscious or something that yeah. is sent through the screen to the audience that like you like you receive this thing of like this is like really happening they're really up there like these this is as real as it could have been. Yes, absolutely. Um. And then, you know, we, we were already talking about how, you know, the, the shots in the spacecraft are, you know, they're intimate, they're handheld, they're, you know, they're, they're on Steadicam, they're floating, you know, they have that very specific quality to it. Uh, but all the shots in mission, mission Control, the way this is accomplished is they have a, uh, a horizontal, you know, lateral uh, uh, dolly track kind of at the front of the room. And on that dolly, which can, you know, slide left to right, there's also a very long uh, jib, like crane arm, and then a a pan and tilt head on the end for the camera, which meant that um, number one, like every shot is very stable and steady, but it also means that like at any moment that he wanted to, Howard could just do essentially any kind of 360 degree camera move uh, towards or away from any character or console they were interacting with uh, and, and just freeze him to do so much, uh, so many sort of like of these dramatic camera moves and, and isolate these specific moments in, in, in really like, you know, special uh, ways. Yeah, I think we're using the word um, handheld to describe how the camera is like up there in space with them. But it's not exactly like handheld camera work. It is like floating handheld. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it is, it, it, it's, it's off the ground. It, 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 I mean, you know, as it's supposed to, it feels like someone is floating around with the astronauts up there. I think when we get to a film like gravity later in this series, wow. that's when, when the camera truly like gets untethered from any, any like uh, uh, conventional uh, ideas of I mean, how the, a camera the, must the exist way in they space. Shot that is, uh, is yeah. very, very specific and cool and relies yeah. on technology that has yet to be created at the time of this, this film. Right. Exactly. Yeah. How would, uh, you know, I said already that he, he, he knew he needed to, um, you know, make this a rescue movie as much as a survival one. And he has to mm-hmm. include these, these, you know, three spaces, not just the, the home, the spaceship, but also mission control. 
and the the sort of main like creative idea that he he has is that this all needs to be uh filmed uh and captured the the same way that one would just shoot like a phone call basically Hmm. um he says i decided that it was a three-way communication at all times and i should choose it like it was a phone conversation there's certain rules that you follow about screen direction and camera movement and things like that there was jim lovell's family at home listening to this little speaker eventually going to nasa to try and keep this connection alive with her husband and this hope alive then there were the mission controllers and of course the astronauts so it's this this great thing and it's so subtle but it works so well where like you got Hanks, you know, like framed right, looking left, talking mm-hmm. into his microphone. And then you cut to like Ed Harris, framed left, looking right, talking into his microphone. And yeah, yeah it just feels like they're, they're having this conversation in the same room together, even though they are thousands and thousands of miles apart. Yeah. Again, something that we're going to revisit next week with First Man. But yeah, the, this idea that like they are so close in communication and yet so far is is a uh, a theme that I think we see through a lot of these films. Yeah. Apparently there were two scenes that were criticized by people as being sort of like, you know, overly dramatic and, you know, like, you know, kind of ham-fisted into the the, the film that were in fact based on reality. And uh, two of these scenes, uh, they, they involve Marilyn Lovell, uh, Lovell's wife. The first one being the, the uh, wedding ring slipping off in the shower bef- right before the lawn um, <laughs> actually happened was not a screenwriting wow. invention yeah thank god yeah incredibly uh you know a bleak metaphorical moment uh and then uh similarly the moment that uh you know lovell finds out he's going to space and that it's going to be the apollo 13 not the 14 he tells his wife uh, marilyn and she is very freaked out and superstitious uh, about it being the 13 <laughs> um and NASA has not named a mission or a spacecraft with the number 13 since the Apollo 13. That's <laughs> so funny. Yeah. And so stupid. It's like being in all these buildings in New York where there's no 13th floor. No 13th floor, floor like, yeah. Come on. Yeah, my building doesn't have a 13th floor. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, it's really dumb. Uh, they, they, uh, yeah, there's all those little moments of these these, these bad signs, these bad, uh, like... Yeah. Uh, the These his car doesn't start yeah yeah uh, and they're like joking about how unlucky it is and it's like well careful what do you wish for you know yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> don't jinx it yeah production hired uh space works to build the the suits for the actors and they were exact replicas of the suits worn on the actual mission uh, these were real, you know, compression spacesuits, basically. Uh, wow. ox- oxygen was actually pumped into the suits to, uh, A, cool the actors down, and B, allow them to breathe like in, in real spacesuits. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, as opposed to in, uh, you know, 2001, where Kubrick just seals, uh, seals the uh, stuntman into the, into the suit and, uh, and, and lets him, uh, you know, suffer oxygen deprivation. <laughs> uh bacon said of being in the suit i couldn't breathe i had to sit down for some reason it just flipped me out it had something to do with all of your extremities being tightly closed up man Uh, another big fear for me (laughs) yeah uh conversely when hanks put the suit on for the first time he said it's a dream come true boys (laughs) what what's the dream he just wanted to be uh he wanted to be an astronaut oh i see He, he said uh when we did the launch sequence in our pressure suits with the helmets on and the air being pumped into us, and I could only hear the other two guys breathing through their microphones and the capsule being shaken, I tell you, I felt like I was there. I definitely felt as though I was on my way. It was truly exhilarating. 
Yeah, that stuff helps. It I got to say that is right? the dream. I would love right. to I would love to have that experience. <laughs> we can set that up for you. That yeah, you seems think like with it. <laughs> think the Eye of the Duck production budget can cover me uh simulating space flight. Oh, we'll just send you to space camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? Uh speaking of the space launch, it was one of the most complicated things uh, that they they made for the film. Originally, they had planned on using actual NASA stock footage of the launch uh, as uh, as another film. The right stuff had done previously. Yeah. Um, but uh, VFX supervisor Robert Legazzo ended up not wanting to use it as he felt the change in uh, quality would be jarring for the audience. Yeah. Yeah. He said, initially, we looked at NASA footage and you have a spectacular impression of it. You need to find some reason why not to use it. I mean, why wouldn't you want to take advantage of it? Sure. But when you went to actually analyze it after you got over the initial thing of that's just unbelievable, when you actually have to do it, what pieces would you use? And you start to see the disparity between all the different shots and it's no longer as spectacular as you thought it would be. So what they end up doing here is a lot of computer generated stuff, right? Yeah, the the whole thing is basically um is is basically done uh in in CG. So they they build, you know, like uh I mean it's a combination of uh model work and CG. So that's like they've got Yeah, the, it looks the, pretty good. I think it really it holds up yeah, quite well. Yeah, a lot of it holds up. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's there's footage of them building these composite images in the in the behind the scenes and it's like you know they've got a they've got a a layer for like texture on the outside of the spacecraft they've got a layer for the ice that's coming off of it they've got a layer for the steam they've got a layer for the you know they've really uh they're they're doing it they're doing it right it's it's extremely cool um i'm always so mesmerized by that that image of the um like the sheets of ice you know uh cracking and and, and coming off it's it's so cool it's great yeah Howard had told Legato that if they were going to recreate the launch, they would have to shoot it the way that Martin Scorsese would shoot it. And Legato was confused by this until he started actually going through Scorsese's filmography. Yeah. Uh, And the thing that ends up really inspiring the sequence uh, was actually The Color of Money, uh, where uh, he's watching these pool playing sequences and he says, they were really cool and explosive and it was hard to put your finger on why, but there was something that just made them particularly interesting. So I went in frame by frame and I realized what they were doing was double cutting in three or four frames, miss edits, and it would double up the action. Not enough for your eye to quite see that it was doubled, but if it went on for one or two frames more, you would see the repeat. But the way it was edited, there was this fantastic snap to it. Wow. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're like copying clips? No. So basically like when they're going from shot A to shot B, yeah. The, they're intentionally overlapping the the like continuity, so the last like couple of uh, oh, frames, oh okay, like, I the see. Conti- like, yeah. They're overlapping the continuity of the action. So instead right. of it being like they're cutting on the moment that the action changes from A to B, they're yeah. including like a couple of the the previous frames of the same uh, action from a different angle, uh, and then including the the same action from a different angle right afterwards. Wow. Yeah. So I guess time is sort of stretching out in this yeah. really weird and, and kind of jolting way. Yeah. 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 They're expanding huh. time. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that he gets this like, you know, kind of ambiguous instruction from, from, you know, from Howard and he's like, okay, I will go frame by frame through these action sequences <laughs> and I'll figure out what's happening. Yeah. I mean, the color of money, the, the, the billiards movie, which is a, a sequel to the hustler by, Martin Scorsese, yeah, starring Tom Cruise and, and Paul Newman. Uh, mm-hmm. That is such a undervalued Scorsese film. Man, oh I yeah, love that film, so good. Um, 
yes, as I was saying, the the, the launch is it's a, a composite of live action plates, miniature photography, and CG elements. And uh, and Legato, who is the you know is the VFX supervisor, but he edited this launch sequence uh, himself. And he said um, the the way they they built the backgrounds for this was that he essentially went out with a with a film camera and uh, and and shot like thirty different uh, photographs that he could scan in and build a panoramic space with. So it's uh, you know again some of this sort of like precursor to the uh, yeah. the, the the virtual uh, virtual filmmaking that we we end up right. coming back yeah, to. Yeah, that's that's what they did in famously in the first Avengers movie to. To pull off New York, right? Was it all just uh, they just did uh, did plates like that? Yeah, they just sent some. You know, they sent a team of photographers in to take these super high resolution pictures of Times yeah. Square, then just patched them all together. Yeah, and I feel like that's why this still holds up is because the background is made up of thirty images and not yeah. just like not just yeah, one, you're right. You know? Yeah, uh, and. We've been praising the launch, but uh, someone else who uh, found it very compelling was Buzz Aldrin, uh, who was completely <laughs> fooled by it. And he asked Howard where he'd gotten these uh, these shots from. <laughs> I love Buzz Aldrin. He's such a bizarre man. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's the one who uh, who punched somebody out who was saying that the, the moon landing was yeah. fake. <laughs> so oh, I love that. He punched this man named Bart Seibrel. Uh, <laughs> I think there's there's video of it too, isn't there? That sounds yeah. about right. Yeah, there is. Oh my god! <laughs> and there's that great clip of Buzz Aldrin. I think he's getting <laughs> yeah, he's like an old man <laughs> wailing on this guy. <laughs> um, there's that clip of Buzz Aldrin getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom, I think, next to uh, by Trump, and like Trump is making a speech, and Buzz Aldrin's standing there with like the most like ridiculous look on his face like what the fuck is this guy talking (laughs) yeah definitely worth uh looking up if you're at a computer right now amazing um for the shots of the uh you know the the aforementioned oxygen escaping from the uh the spaceship into the uh into the void uh initially they thought they would they would do the spray in in cg uh, and they spent about a month trying to build the effect, but it was uh, too taxing and and did not look how they wanted it to look. So Legato just took a uh, an Evian spray bottle and filmed it, uh, filmed himself spraying it against a green screen, and then just uh, <laughs> composited that that right in. Wow, it's yeah. good compositing work, man. It's hard yeah. keying that stuff out. <laughs> really, uh, really well done. The shots of the uh, command module finally uh, crashing back into earth uh you know with the the parachute and landing in the ocean initially that was going to be done in cg but legato uh a didn't have faith that the effect would work and uh having seen similar shots in other films and b just thought it would it would look better if done practically so they created a scale miniature of the capsule and you know attached miniature parachutes to it uh, and when I say miniature, I don't mean, you know, like a six inch long train, you know, it's not like, uh, it's like mm-hmm. a model train set. It's like, it's still, you know, about the the width of like, you know, your, your outstretched arms. It's, it's still, it's still got some heft to it. Uh, and they, they, they just, they dropped it out of a, uh, they dropped it out of a helicopter and, uh, and filmed it, uh, which I think wow. is pretty cool. Yeah. Howard asked Lovell if he would like to cameo as an admiral on the uh, on the deck of the ship at the end of the film. And he said, I retired as a captain and I will cameo as a captain. 
And he did. <laughs> yeah, there's a few other astronauts in this movie too, aren't there? I think so, yeah. But I mean, he's the, he's the main one. Yeah. Uh, Howard worked with composer James Horner on the score. Um, and uh, this, this to me is like, it's like a classic... It's a classic Horner score. It has, uh, yeah. you can you can feel his, uh, you can feel Titanic in here. You can feel <laughs> Avatar in here. Uh, a lot of the same instrumentation. Um, but he said, if you start with a big score, it sets the audience up for just another sci-fi movie. Except this is more like a documentary because you know where it's going to end. What I was trying to get out of the story was idealism. Everything that was great in the guys at Mission Control and in the capsule, the best thing about NASA. And that's a very elusive thing to bring out, but that's what I wanted, idealism. And I feel like he he achieves it. You know, it, it has yeah. that like very stirring kind of quality to it. Yeah, and that might be another reason why this uh, feels very Spielberg is, you know, idealism is such a big Spielberg uh, uh, theme throughout his career. Yeah, for sure. Howard hired uh, frequent collaborators Dan Hanley and Mike Hill to edit the film. Uh, and they had been trying to sort of keep up with camera. Uh, so they were, I believe, editing during production. And they had a first cut of the film done five days after the, the shoot had wrapped. Damn. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's fast. Jesus. Yeah. Um, they, uh, they of course ran into some difficulty, uh, during this time, however, because, uh, number one, they just, they had so much stuff to work with. Uh, they were getting stuff from second units and third units as well. And, uh, because the, uh, control room and the space, uh, shots were shot a month apart, uh, it made sort of finding the continuity between them a little bit difficult. Uh, and then to make things even uh, worse is that when they're shooting the zero gravity stuff in the uh, in the vomit comet, there is uh, a no usable sound and b no slate. Wow! Oh yeah, I, I didn't even think about sound. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they have to just eyeball the sink for all of that. So they didn't have time to slate. It's not worth it. Yeah. Well, there's the, yeah. yeah. They just they, there was nothing they could do. Apollo 13 was also the the first film to be digitally remastered for the IMAX format. Uh, And because of the constraints of IMAX's uh, presentation capabilities at the time, the film had to be edited to just under 120 minutes for its IMAX release. Oh, wow. I didn't didn't realize IMAX was around in 95. Yeah, but I think it's it's like mostly being used for like, you know, 45 minute, like, you know, documentary stuff you see at the planetarium. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, the, the maximum length of a, a thing you could screen was 120 minutes. So they had to get the film, uh, cut down for that. Apollo 13 was released domestically on June 30th, 1995. And on an estimated budget of $52 million, the film brought in 172 million domestically and 223.8 million worldwide. However, it has since grossed upwards of 355 million through subsequent re-releases. The film received an extremely positive response from both critics and audiences, with the story, emotion, effects, acting, and direction all being praised by critics. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards, including Best Picture, and it won for Best Film Editing and Best Sound. Grazer said of losing Best Picture, So now we're at the Oscars. We have Tom Hanks, Ron Howard, Jim Lovell, and myself. The movie got nominated, and that's the final award of the night. And I was sitting at the end row and Sidney Poitier's got the envelope. He's opening the envelope and I see an imperceptible B roll off of his lips. And for some reason, I thought he was saying Brian and Apollo 13. I mean, I projected that. 
I stood up to get up and get the Oscar. Oh my God. And they said, Braveheart. And I uh. sit down, <laughs> totally embarrassed. And Jim Lovell reached over and grabbed my wrist and said, I never made it to the moon either. <laughs> That's so embarrassing. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's rough. What a bummer. I was at a, I was at a play festival award ceremony in college and they awarded uh, a short play that I wrote for best director or something. And I got up, I didn't direct it. I wrote it and I, I mm-hmm. got up thinking like, well, I'm the writer. I'm going to go, you know, collect yeah. the award. <laughs> and like, it was so embarrassing when like I started walking and the director walked past me and like, what are you doing, man? Like I'm the director. I'm getting new war, not you. Oh my God. <laughs> That's awful. Yeah. Well, I have, I have a, I have a similar tale of shame if, uh, if you want to come. Yeah, go ahead. So I, uh, I shot this feature and I, the director and I got a, you know, a, a call from the festival saying that, uh, we had each bit that I, I had won best cinematography in a feature mm-hmm. film and he had won best editing in a feature film. And we're really excited and we, we plan on going to the festival and, uh, you know, the director got an email basically saying that um, for them to uh, put our name on trophies and, and give us trophies, uh, it would cost $200 per trophy. And we were both completely broke. We couldn't, you know, couldn't afford anything. And so he was like, no, we don't need trophies, but like, that's, that's cool. Uh, thinking that that meant like we would, we'd still won, we would get yeah, the award, sure. but like we just simply wouldn't get trophies. So we go to the awards ceremony and like we've each written, you know, speeches oh and like the thing is being broadcast live and we're both like so oh, hyped like this is our night we've you know we've yeah, made yeah. it and they call out the award for um best cinematography and i start to get up and they award it to someone else and i'm like what the fuck is going what? on here and so then the director pulls up the email again and he had never shown mm. me the email he had merely oh, called geez. me up and said do you need a trophy it costs 200 dollars." and i was like i don't have 200 bucks <laughs> and we're looking at the email and it's it's not just the the uh the trophy is 200 dollars. if you can't afford the trophy you they you know they just skip you and move on to the next person so he had basically <laughs> told them no it's okay we don't need to win oh my god yeah so uh no no uh all shame that night no award. <laughs> well i was looking so yeah the 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 final runtime of this movie is 140 minutes so uh yes they cut they cut like 20 minutes out cut for the 20 IMAX minutes for, for imax huh i wonder what that there uh, there must be a cut of that somewhere that you can see is it on the, the... universal release the imax cut <laughs> Like, I, I'm sure, you think this has been released in IMAX since then with an extended cut? Like I, if, it's, if it's cut, been re-released sure in IMAX, it it's, been, it's been the full-length film, for sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder what they cut. Yeah. How long will it take you to get to the moon? Four days. But that's pretty fast. See, this is the Saturn 4B booster, and it shoots us away from the Earth. It's fast. Is a bullet from a gun until the moon's gravity actually grabs us and pulls us into a circle around the moon, which is called an orbit, right? Fred and I float down the tunnel into this guy, the lunar module, this spidery-looking guy. Only holds two people, and it's just for landing on the moon. And I take the controls, and I steer it around, and I fly it down... Adjusting it here, the attitude there, pitch, roll, for a nice, 
Soft landing on the moon. Better than Neil Armstrong. Way better than Pete Conrad. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. All right. Let's talk about some scenes. Let's do it. Who's up? Duck scenes in space. Uh, I believe it is you. Me, eh? Wait, no, it's you. This is the start of a new double feature, and you you did, you did, you did two thousand one. Oh, all right, it's me. It's you. My I really hope scene. you don't have the same scene as me. You always hope that. I do always hope the, that. The goal of this podcast is to find the one scene. <laughs> Every time we disagree, we have failed. <laughs> <laughs> If you say so. Well, last week on our episode with Sarah Welch Larson on the 2002 Solaris film, um, I was very taken by a monologue. And again, I was, I, I found a monologue in this film that I feel acts as the eye of the duck scene. Oh, great. And it is a monologue from our friend Tom Hanks, um, Jim Lovell speaking on a television broadcast, this is towards the end of the film, and they're broadcasting an old interview with Lovell about him trying to get, uh, trying to navigate his way back home in the dark uh, when oh, he's yeah. on a uh, a a banshee, which I guess is a very high speed jet plane, and it's this really kind of out of place feeling scene where uh, Lovell's wife is watching the TV and I guess sort of remembering this happening or, or, you know, remembering this story being, being married to this man and knowing that this happened to him. And, you know, we've been talking about these space movies that are really, I guess, kind of diving deep on the, you know, how poetic space travel is and how human it is, you know, there's no no space film that is more invested in that than last week's uh, Steven Soderbergh Solaris movie, which is like, you know, mm-hmm. just so about like the notion of of being out there and and uh, 
how psychological this situation is for a human being. Mm-hmm. And this film is very much invested in like the, the, the fact rather than the science fiction of it all. And that's what this whole movie is about, you know, how these, these men, these real men truly, you know, in, in real conditions came back mm-hmm. and I'm watching it, um, thinking with this series in mind thinking about what is sort of the story that's happening here rather than, you know, the plot, like what, Mm -hmm. what are these characters going through? We have some semblances of like, of little, you know, personal journeys happening here. The biggest one probably is that, you know, Lovell just really wants to land on the moon. Um, we have some stuff going on here with, you know, Kevin Bacon's Swigert, like thinking that it was his fault, maybe feeling like he's not ready. Uh, of course, there's this thing between Lovell and his wife that everyone wants, it, it, obviously, everybody wants him to come home. There's so many, like, obvious things happening here. Like, it, it's just so, you know, on the nose. Like, these guys got to get back from space. But the whole time I'm wondering, like, what is this movie, like, trying to tell us more than just this this true event? Yeah. And I think when it finally popped out to me is is this this eye of the duck scene where uh, so Lovell is talking about uh, being on this banshee in, in, uh, in the sea of Japan and uh, his radar is jammed and his, his homing signal is gone. So he's completely in the dark and he's, you know, uh, you know, ostensibly flying at a very high speed trying to find his way home. And so, you know, I won't read the whole monologue, but he says on TV, um, so it's leading me away from where I was supposed to be. And I'm looking down at a big black ocean. So I flip on my map light and then suddenly zap. Everything shorts out right there in my cockpit. All my instruments are gone. My lights are gone. I can't even tell what my altitude is. I know I'm running out of fuel. So I'm thinking about ditching in the ocean. And I look down there. And then in the darkness, there's this green trail. It's like a long carpet that's just laid out right beneath me. And it was the algae. It was that phosphorescent stuff that gets churned up in the wake of a big ship. And it was leading me home. You know, if my cockpit lights hadn't shorted out, there was no way that I'd ever been able to see that. So you never know what events are to transpire to get you home. A final mm-hmm. line, really. You never know what events are going to transpire to get you home. Uh, I love that. And I love... I love that it's also not shown to us. I mean, yeah. like, you know, Howard could have easily done like a flashback and, and really spelled it out for the audience, but he just leaves this scene kind of like in there. It's not really active, you know, in, in you know, it has nothing to do with the action at hand. It's not like propelling the, the plot forward, but it is really there for the story because we cut right from him saying, you don't know, you know, what events are going to transpire we cut from them from, from that broadcast to them in space in the cold yeah, and, and uh, you know, and, and looking for like, what is that thing that that's going to get them home? And we get the earth in, in that moment where uh, we, we spoke about it already. Like they, they need to orient themselves with something cause they're, they're drifting out there. So on the one hand you can, you can think of the earth as, as his, his green trail out in the darkness that's going to get him home. Mm. But I think the fact that his wife is watching the television broadcast yes. and there's this little moment, I love the idea that like she is the green trail 
and mm-hmm. we spend enough time with them in the opening moments of this film and and their relationship and their family you know him with his kids and and uh, I, I think Howard gives us just enough to understand that like the people back home, like the people we care about, like, you know, the, the extent at which humans will go to, you know, to return to other humans, to be like in their pack, you know, yes, uh, that, that is, I think what is going on on a story level here. And I really love that. And it gives it just enough scaffolding, I think, to really work, uh, for for a for a character like a transformation or you know for yeah for something for us you know it's this trail for us to understand what's going on beneath all of these yeah, very exciting stimulating and tension filled you know uh, acrobatics in space. Apollo thirteen commander Jim Lovell has more time in space, almost twenty four days already, than any other man. And I asked him recently if he ever was scared. Oh, I've had an engine flame out a few times in an aircraft and was kind of curious as to whether it was going to light up again, things of that nature. But uh, they, they seem to work out. Is there a specific instance in an airplane emergency when you can recall fear? Uh, well, I tell you, I remember this one time. I'm, uh, I'm in a banshee at night in combat conditions, so there's no running lights on the carrier. Uh, it was a Shangri-La. We were in the Sea of Japan, and my, my radar had jammed. And my homing signal was gone because somebody in Japan was actually using the same frequency. And so it was, it was leading me away from where I was supposed to be. And I'm looking down at a big black ocean. So uh, I flip on my map light. And then suddenly, zap, everything shorts out right there in my cockpit. All my instruments are gone, my lights are gone, and I can't even tell now what my altitude is. Uh, I know I'm running out of fuel, so I'm thinking about, uh, about ditching in the ocean. And I, I look down there, and then... In, in the darkness, there's this uh, there's this green trail. It's like a long carpet that's just laid out right beneath me, and it was the algae, right? It was that phosphorescent stuff that gets churned up in the wake of a big ship, and it was it was it was just leading me home. And now, if my cockpit lights hadn't shorted out, there's no way I'd have ever been able to see that. So uh, you uh, you never know what what events are going to transpire to get you home. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's a, a, a really great pick. Um, you know, I, I do think, you know, like Lovell's arc is so much about, um, you know, failing to realize the impossible dream uh, and like making peace with it. And uh, I think uh, it's so, it is so smart to include Marilyn uh, as sort of like the the, on, the only main character who isn't, you know, either an astronaut or a NASA employee you know and she really is the thing that grounds him and as you say leads him home and i think because howard has been shooting all of this interplay like it is a phone conversation mm-hmm. there's actually there's another moment i think is so special that ties directly into what you're saying um or i guess it's a pair of moments but there's 
at the beginning of the film, the two of them are on Earth and it is uh, right at the beginning, right after they've uh, watched Neil Armstrong land on the moon. And we get this thing of him putting his thumb out in front of his eye. And when he does that, he and he focuses on his thumb, it obscures yeah. the moon. And then he, yeah. he takes it down and he's, he's sort of it's playing this visual. game. And amazing visual. And then you get the reverse of that in, in space yeah, where he's, he's doing the thumb over the Earth. But also at the same time that he's looking at the Earth and he's obscuring it and seeing like it's so close, but it's so far. And like he's looking at it in the same way that he has been looking out at the stars, out at the moon. Um, we cut back to to Marilyn looking up mm-hmm. at, at space. And, you know, Howard's been shooting all of this like a phone conversation. But the person that Hanks and that the astronauts have been on the phone with has been mission control. And the person that uh, Marilyn has been on the phone with is not the phone, but the TV and the radio, like getting broadcast about, uh, about level. And instead we, we, we finally have this one isolated moment where it seems like the two of them are looking directly at each other. Um, And I think it just really reinforces um, what you're saying, this notion of of her being the, the, the phosphorescent algae that, that guides her home. And, it's always a great reminder, you know, doing this show with you and exploring all of these huge achievements in, in filmmaking and storytelling. I'm always reminded of this thing that like, you know, it is not enough just to have this story of uh, this mm-hmm. very compelling, you know, uh, uh, real life story, this event of, of astronauts, you know, trying to find their way home in space against all odds. Like that's, that's wonderful. Like that, that is, that happened that, you know, is the great, is great fodder for a film or, you know, a script, but still, even with this compelling of a actual event that you could just like write down and, and tell, still you have to sit and ask like, okay, so, you know, that's what happened, but what's the story? Like, what is the story you want to tell? I want to tell the story about astronauts coming back to earth. Okay. But What's it about? Like, right. what is this actually about? You still have to find it no matter Yes. this. I mean, this ostensibly like very easy, like story to, to pull off, yeah. uh, you know, it, it's so, so compelling. It hits all these and it and I mean, truly happens. It's perfect. Like, you know, stranger than fiction things, you know, yeah, like, like yeah. this is like, like every element of this actual story, like even to, to the point that people are like, Oh, that contrivance of the wedding ring falling off is just so ridiculous. And it's it just actually like, happened. No, all of this fucking happened. Like right, that's how right. that's how incredible this 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 tale is. You know, right? It's too good. You know, yeah. it, it, it's the kind of thing that you you seek out when you when you want to tell a story. But you know, and we're using the word story here. I, sometimes when we talk about this stuff, separating a plot, you know, the events at hand and the story, the things that happen to the characters, yeah, uh, you know, the emotions underneath. Uh, and, the, and the theme, I think a lot of right. what we're talking about here is theme as well. Yeah. I just think that is, it's always the enduring challenge, I think, of storytelling. And for me, it's definitely screenwriting of like finding that thing. It, it's, it's never enough just to have like an exciting concept. Like you, even in something like this, you have to have something, you know, you have to have a foundation. You have to have that story scaffolding. Yes. Yeah. Great pick. Um, I'm going to go in a completely uh, different direction here, ah. uh, which I think will be interesting. So there's this moment around uh, an hour and 35 minutes into the film 
Uh, and basically, this is this is after like everything that can go wrong has already gone wrong. I think they've they've actually just solved the uh, the CO two filter issue. And uh, and and we cut to the interior of the uh, of the spacecraft, and we see just this series of kind of like empty empty shots of just the uh, different control panels and portholes and and all these things inside the ship, and they are frozen. And because they haven't been able to dump their their waste anymore, there's a there's a bag of urine just taped to the inside of the spacecraft, and the it's so cold that the adhesive uh, on the tape uh, fails, and it and it just starts to float through the room. And as the, we're seeing all this stuff, we hear this really like low, distorted music, and you can really barely even make out what it is. And then we cut and reveal that the sound is uh, is coming from Fred Hayes's portable cassette player, and we had seen this cassette player earlier in the film when they are uh, they're doing this broadcast back to Earth about you know what it's like <laughs> to be on the Apollo mission, and then you know we find out it hasn't even aired, and that uh, you know originally they were going to play uh, the theme from two thousand one because this ship is also called the Odyssey, and you know um, and so it's this cassette player. And it is uh it's floating through through the through the cabin and it is completely untethered. And the way that it is shot, it makes it feel as though it is like in free fall, that it is falling. Mm-hmm. And the music slowly uh fades and 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 gets so slow that the space between the the beats just becomes infinite and it stops. You know, and it's because the temperature in the lem is so cold that the batteries can no longer function. The the conditions are so harsh that the chemical reactions uh, that would be taking place inside the battery can no longer take place. And then we we cut and we see that Swigert has just been sitting there in the dark, uh, watching this happen, uh, unable to to do anything to stop it. And I think Apollo thirteen is is circling around lots of different ideas you know and uh on on some level i'm actually uh you know compelled by the idea that perhaps this is a film that's in conversation with jurassic park because it's you know <laughs> it's this blockbuster about the the sheer act of will required to create something and it has all these you know obstacles that have to be overcome and you know in order to take these raw elements and kind of give them life and you know defeat the odds and convince the financiers and it's very telling that we have roger corman playing like you know essentially a (laughs) producer and you know like trying to come in and cut the cut the budget and you know they have to develop techniques you know i think that parallel is is very clear um and i think you could you could really expound on that if you wanted to but i i think ultimately what I, I end up landing on here is is this notion that um Howard is interested in uh in in why one would do that, you know, which is a thing that um Jurassic Park doesn't really get into so much, but uh because the characters in the film have not uh have not have not thought about why they're doing it. You know, they're not mm-hmm. stopping to think, they're just doing. Uh but but Howard is asking, why do we dare to do these impossible things and and what is the true cost of them? And, you know, this, the film opens with all of the characters in the film watching Apollo 11. And Lovell goes outside and he, he's looking at the moon. He says, Christopher Columbus, Charles Lindbergh, mm-hmm. and Neil Armstrong. And it, it tells us 
uh, it tells us a lot about Lovell, but it also tells us that, uh, you know, this, 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 you know, it's, it's, he's, he's considering this notion that, uh, discovery and exploration are about furthering mankind, but they are also about the singular person's quest for greatness. Mm. And I think that is something that Lovell wants. I think he, uh, he, he wants to be considered in this list. And I think that, uh, you know, many artists, uh, many people that create, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this is one of the thing that inspires them to draw on their sheer will to do so. But the, the cost of these actions and the cost of this will is, uh, is all around you. There are the people you leave behind who are supporting you and, and who support you draw on the, you know, the friends and family who, uh, who, who, you know, you, you do this at the expense of. Uh, then there is the, the unnamed team of people that, that works on your behalf and, and, and reaps none of the reward or greatness that you might be seeking. But then finally, there is also the, the risk to yourself, uh, the, the way in, in which you put yourself in, in, in front of harm uh the you enter an environment that is so inhospitable to life that basic chemical reactions uh required for its functioning become impossible there's no oxygen no gravity no heat there is nothing you know you go searching for the ultimate prize but at the end of the day you are floating through nothing slowly Mm. dying in real time while everyone else watches and waits and I think that series of images and this this tape player in particular being watched by Swigert yeah. uh, just in, encapsulates all of that. Um, it, it just really shows you this very sort of, you know, physical representation of this notion. And beyond that is is one of the more perfect executions of of anti-gravity uh, filmmaking that we've seen. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just so... Uh, effective at, at also itself being this this great piece of of sort of silent film spectacle in the same way that uh, many of the other films that we uh, are discussing in this series uh, uh, also do. And I feel like it's this this kind of imagery, but you know, uh, that carrying this much meaning and weight is that special source that like makes Apollo thirteen not just, you know, a, a riveting true story put to screen, but one of these things that makes it uh, a great space film, you know, 2001, Solaris, Apollo 13. Uh, and that's why it's my eye at the duck. Yeah, there are so many really like powerful little images and, and exchanges in space in the LEM, right? Yeah. Uh, I really love that image. It's definitely one that sticks with you for sure. It's just, I mean, it's just a, a such a powerful image. Like watch this thing slowly die as it floats through the void. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's just, that's the whole movie. You're watching these, you're watching these people slowly die as they float through the void, you know? It's it's fucking like miraculous that these men made it back. It's fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, there is like no uh 
it's unbelievable. Like it, it truly is stranger than fiction in the sense that like each one of the things that goes wrong, like you can't believe that all of these things have gone wrong. And you can't believe that despite all of that, they've overcome all of them. Right. Which is of course, again, why like, you know, I, I feel like it's in conversation with like something like Jurassic Park, where like it mm-hmm. feels like, you know, this is a movie about the act of creating a blockbuster. You know, yeah. it, it has so much of that to it. That's it, true. It, it, it makes sense that these filmmakers will be drawn to the text in that way. But it's just, it's unbelievable watching it all play out. And the, and again, like, like in filmmaking, like the sheer ingenuity of just, uh, we're going to use the, we're going to put a square peg in a round hole. We're going to yeah. use, you know, duct tape and, mm-hmm. and and plastic wrap and we're going to save these three men's lives. We're going to stop them from, you know, uh, their brains from starving to death and, and, and dying. It's really the machinery, right? And like the kind mm-hmm. of the, the archaic like uh, technology they have at that time that is going, and it's like that they are up against faulty technology and you know it's one of the it's i feel like it's a recurring thing in space movies that like you know the uh the android is always you know human error is at is at hand here but like they they are the ones that get themselves back they don't make any errors at all it's all the technology which is interesting there's definitely a reading here of like a you know technology versus human ingenuity and like the limits of these machines that we have yeah Uh, i mean of course the machines are all created by human beings so there is there is that element but but i do agree with you like they are uh they are overcoming the uh the failures in these systems and it definitely uh kind of hits home this sense that like space travel is like ludicrous it's like yeah you know you're strapped to a bomb going (laughs) out of earth's orbit and once you get out there like you're on your own like there's yes. no <laughs> there's no rails you're on your own no, yeah uh now I, this film also is really good at evoking the feeling of 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 being like fighting against technology in a high stress situation where something has to get done like very quickly and you have to use like all of your instincts to to fix the technology i mean we've had a few of those i mean just before we were recording yeah, i'm kind of having you, this that's moment why you texted me when apollo where, 13 is happening to me. where it's like all right i'm on my knees and this extension cord looks like it's not working but uh is it on maybe it's on the, just the light's not on and like why is my my preamp not lighting up and like i'm looking at my USB C ports i'm like okay is this port not supplying power and which is the port that actually works and then you're looking at all your software and i know as a video editor like i've i get in those situations all the time uh where like you have to deliver the cut and like you know there's something wrong with with the export and you're you're digging through your software you're looking at all your equipment and being like we have to figure this out like in yeah. the next five minutes, like, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm high on, on caffeine. I got to take a dump and like, <laughs> the, the client slept. needs, yeah, the client needs the cut like now fix it now. <laughs> and the, the technology is not like playing well with you. Right. It's like that one little thing that went wrong and you have to figure out what it was. And you're probably going to fix it with like duct tape, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. this is uh there's a whole, there's a whole, uh, you know, culture within filmmaking of uh of the shitty rig 
you know, <laughs> this, this idea that like, you know, like we, we fixed it with what we had available, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the, the light stand snapped in half. So we like gaff taped the, yeah. the light to the ceiling, you know, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's just this amazing uh, thing where everyone comes together and you're like, if we, if we don't fix this piece of tech, like we're not going to get the shot. And if right. we don't get the shot, there's no film, you know, and, and, and then you, you duct tape it all together. You gaff tape it all together. Yeah, this really is a movie that's held together with duct tape, and I love that. Yeah, it's amazing. It's the yeah. coolest thing. Yeah. Yeah. We're hitting a lot of classics. I'm realizing that so many, like, you know, uh, beloved, uh, you know, gigantic American films also happen to take place in space. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the final frontier. You know? <laughs> oh, I wrote down, uh, and this is true, I take my wedding ring off before I shower because of this film. <laughs> Even though I now have a shower with a proper drain cover, so it would be fine, but uh, I literally do, uh, yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. We want to hear from you. Tell us about your Eye of the Duck scenes. You can find us on all social media at Eye of the Duck Pod. Email us at contact at eyeoftheduckpod.com. If you'd like to join the conversation about movies, movie scenes, and all things film, find an invite to Eye of the Discord in our show notes. You can find me on Twitter at Dominic Nero or on my website at domnero.com. And you can find me on social media at Adam Vol. That's V-O-L-E. And you can watch my films online at adamvolerich.com. That's V-O-L-E-R-I-C-H. The main soundtrack in our episode intro is the recording of Strauss's On the Beautiful Blue Danube that's heard in 2001 A Space Odyssey. The audio cues are pulled from various space movies that we cover in this series. The music you're hearing right now is the recording of Cacciatorian's Gayane Ballet Suite, also from 2001, A Space Odyssey. And our logo was designed by Francesca Volrich. You can purchase her work at francescavolrich.com slash shop. This episode was edited by Eric Gunnison. Thank you, Eric. Special thanks to Parth Marate for providing research for this episode. Thanks, Parth. Thanks, Parth. Next week... Damien Chazelle's First Man, which you can stream with a subscription to DirecTV or Dom's favorite service, Fubo TV. Yeah. <laughs> or you can rent or buy it from your favorite video on demand platform. For all the Fubo heads out there. You know, I, I also discovered on my TV another app called Zumo TV. Zumo TV. I don't know yeah, this one. With an X. I've wow. Meaning X-U-M-O. I've been meaning to get into Zumo TV. Check back <laughs> in next week to see if I did. and the next time you watch a movie remember to keep your eye on the duck my god it's full of stars Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin' Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. 
Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.